0: Continuing our study in the Book of Ephesians, and we're finishing up a four-part series that we began several weeks ago—three weeks ago exactly—based on Ephesians chapter three, verses fourteen through twenty-one. And we're going to finish this up today. Next week, we're going to—we're going to um, we're gonna take a two-week break from Ephesians, and uh, just for a little variety. Uh, next week, we're going to uh, be speaking on uh, Christmases for Misfit Toys," <clears throat> and. Uh, as many of you as are going to be in town, I hope that you can make it out for that for our Christmas morning celebration. And then on New Year's morning, uh, we'll also have um, uh, take a break from Ephesians talk about resolutions and stuff like that. Remember, the next two weeks, the service will only be at 10.45. So if you show up at 9, you're going to have a long wait. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3, and this morning we're going to read verse 20 through 21. We've likened salvation to a car too many times, but we'll do it one more time. A Lamborghini, a Ferrari, or something like that. And Ephesians 1 through 3 tells us really what that car is all about. It it, it allows us to gloat in the power of this car. And so in the first part of Ephesians, we have the Lord telling us individually and corporately who we are because of what He's done. What is salvation all about? And it just lets us Behold and enjoy the glory of all that. Ephesians 4 through 6, chapters 4 through 6, is about living out that, how to drive the Lamborghini. The passage that we're dealing with here, we've been dealing with for several weeks now, is about turning the ignition of this Lamborghini on, finding out how to rev up the engine. And until we know how to do that, all the driving lessons in the world aren't going to really mean much to us. And so what we've seen the last three weeks is Paul, in a prayer, laying out for us a kind of step-by-step way in which we can go about beginning to make the material in our head matters in our heart, beginning to enflesh some of the gospel. And if that much is true, then this is what's true about the passage today. Paul really here is telling us how fast the Lamborghini can go. Here he's, going to, he's really saying, if you begin to rev up the engine in the way that I have prayed for you to rev it up, this is what's going to happen. And he says this, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen to him who is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more. You can't measure how much more God's able to do beyond what you ask or even imagine. Let's pray. Lord, make this word come alive. I thank you, Lord, that your presence has been here. That's the difference, Lord. That's what it's all about. Lord, and we want this word to continue what was here in the worship service And that is that your spirit would be here and taking these fallible words and giving them life, Lord. Our prayer, Lord, is that this wouldn't come out of the natural. It would come out of the supernatural, Lord. It would be energized by the, the supernatural. And that it would have life from your spirit and from nowhere else, Lord. And open up our minds and our hearts and our ears, Lord, to hear your word straight. And challenge us, Lord. Challenge us, Lord God, in whatever way we need to be challenged. To make us people you want us to be. Amen. Lord, I I pray, finally, that you would, during this message, God, lay it on some people's hearts, those who are called to a ministry of intercession, to be praying for me, as the word goes forth, that it would find fertile soil. Lord God, put it on people's hearts to be praying, and that the Spirit of God would be moving, even as I'm up here talking. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 I love to preach when when there's been worship like that. I, I, it's it, you get up and you just feel like, I feel like I can coast. I feel like I can get back and just sort of say, "Okay, Lord, float. Just uh, take it away." It's 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 uh, it's enjoyable. Some of you here know Friedrich Nietzsche. You don't know him personally, but you've read Friedrich Nietzsche. Have some of you here read Friedrich Nietzsche? Frederick Nietzsche was a famous atheist uh, German philosopher in the 19th century. Probably the most famous atheist of all time, I suspect. Wrote a lot of interesting books. The Antichrist was one of them. He he, uh, was raised a German Lutheran pastor. Uh, I mean, he was raised uh, the son of a a German Lutheran pastor. And apparently he had a rebellious streak that wouldn't quit. And uh, so he ended up a real angry, bitter atheist. Spent the last 10 years of his life Totally insane. But before he went insane, uh, he wrote several books. And, and uh, the most famous of all those books was a book called Thus Spoke Zarathustra." Thus Spoke Zarathustra, And in that book, there's a parable, which is probably the most par- famous parable of anything Nietzsche ever, the eh, most famous thing that Nietzsche wrote. And it's called The Madman in the Marketplace. And in this parable, here's what happens. A man runs into town carrying a lantern in the morning, and starts crying out, God is dead! God is dead and we have killed him! You and I have killed God. And he goes on to sort of prophetically proclaim what humanity will be like in the future because we have killed God. What will be like for human beings to live? Without any meaning, without any significance, without any moral guidance, without any authority, what will humanity look like? And this madman in the marketplace is proclaiming this new super race of people that's going to come and define history for themselves because now there is no God. God is dead. But in the end, the madman says, I come too early. You are not ready yet. And he leaves. Here's what Nietzsche was getting at in this parable. Nietzsche what, didn't really believe that there once was a God that we killed. He didn't believe that. But what he believed was this, that Western people have, by our self-sufficiency, by our modern technology and development of science, and by just the general self-centered shift that our worldview has gone through, he believed that Western people have lost their need for God, that the concept of God is dead. Once upon a time, people really believed that there was a God, and it was obvious to them, and they talked to God, and they prayed to God, and they said, God, give us this day our daily bread, because they really thought that if God didn't do it, they wouldn't get it. But now we make our own bread. We're self-sufficient. We rely on science. We don't interpret the world theistically with God. There we basically function as atheists. But Nietzsche believed, we don't want to admit it, we're too used to the idea of God. The word God, he believed, had lost all of its impact in our life. But we're addicted to going to church, so we keep on doing it, more or less. But it has no meaning. We're functional atheists on a day-to-day basis. God is dead. We have killed him, he said. Now, there's something about the Christmas season that makes me think about that parable. And I'm not a killer... I want you to believe me now. I love Christmas, okay? I love Christmas. I, I uh, am pro-Christmas. I'm not a, a Jehovah Witness or anything of the sort. I love Christmas. I get off on seeing kids' eyes glow when they think about Christmas and Santa Claus and all that stuff and going to stores. And Christmas can bring out the best in people. It also can bring out the worst in people. you see both when you go to the mall. But I love the kind of spirit it creates and I, I see the, you know, the, the way people exchange gifts. I love Christmas. But there's something about it that kind of disturbs me. And and I, I guess it's this, I wonder sometimes as I look around at our culture, making a cultural observation now, if Nietzsche wasn't to a large degree right, what impact does this story of the Christ child make on our lives, really? And let's hear Nietzsche, who maybe was making a good point, do you really, really believe that? What what disturbs me is this, that there's a certain incongruity, it seems to me, that goes on during the Christmas season. If this story that we're celebrating is true, and I love celebrating it, okay, I love celebrating it, Noel, all of that. But if this is true, then the way we celebrate it seems to be sort of disingenuous. As a cultural observation, it seems to me that, to a large degree, this is a, a, and at the Christmas time, sort of a nice story. It's cute, isn't it? It's cute. It's quaint. It's, it's innocuous. It's serene. It's pretty. It's an ornament. It's a nice addition to the rest of our life. It's a nice addendum to everything else we'd ever is doing. And we're glad that it's there. But on the whole, it doesn't. As a cultural statement now, it doesn't really impact us. It's not that we think about it a whole lot. But if this story is true, it seems to me that it'd be anything but what we sometimes make of it during the Christmas season. If this story is true... I'm not saying that it is now, mind you, but if it is true, I do believe it's true. But if it is true, then isn't this the most fantastic, incredible, unthinkable, incomprehensible fact in all of history? And if that is true, doesn't this have to be the most important thing in our life? The thing that defines us, the thing that we live for. If God became a man and died for our salvation, what could compare in importance to that? Which is really to say... The last thing it is is an ornament, a nice addition, a seasonal greeting, a kind of occasional thought, a warm fuzzy, a once upon a time sort of a decoration to the rest of our life. There's something really incongruous that I sense there. You see, the whole thing about the Christmas story is that it's about God, Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us, God with us. And if, and, and if God has really come to us, then the last thing that God is, is a God who is simply a footnote to everything else we do in our life. The God who is with us, and you see this throughout the whole Bible, is a God who is always in our face. A God who will not leave us alone. A God who will not be second place in our life. A God who will not be pushed out to the periphery and be disposed of at our convenience. This is a God who is always in there, wants to be first place, wants to be center place in our life. A God who is active. Like the verse says this morning, God is able. He is able to do. He is able to do immeasurably more. He's able to do immeasurably more than we'd ever ask or ever think. This is a God who does things, who wants to do things, who wants to be involved, wants to change people, wants to shape history. A God who acts. He's not a God like the pagan gods, the stone idols, the ideas, the philosophies, and all the other things that that people might have in their brains. This is a God who's real. A God who's tangible. A God who makes a difference. A God who shapes things. A God who turns things upside down. A God who disturbs things. A God who shows up. That's why he's called Emmanuel. And if this God is true, the last thing that the whole Christmas story is about is that it's a once upon a time, kind of a nice ornament story that we think about once a year or so. God is the God who calls Abraham, calls Isaac, calls Jacob, calls Moses to confront Pharaoh. God is the God who then equips Moses with all of his supernatural ability to convince Pharaoh that he is the true God. Pharaoh doesn't buy it, so now God sends 10 Ten plagues upon Egypt to set his children free. And God is the one who leads them through the desert. God's the one who leads them through the Red Sea, brings out manna from heaven, uh, leads them with a fire, leads them with a cloud. God is the God of Elijah, the God of, of, of Elijah, the God who does miracles through them, the God who tears down the, wall, the walls of Jericho, the God who slays all the Canaanites. This is the God who shows up, the God who does stuff. He acts, he's real, he's tangible, he's visible. The last thing he is is a little philosophy, a thought, a a belief system that somebody holds. Either this God's Emmanuel or he's not God at all. If anything, things things only intensify when we get to the New Testament. Here God becomes one of us. That's what the whole thing is about. God shows up, he becomes a man. Think about it. He becomes a man. Emmanuel, God with us. The God who will not leave us alone. The God who refuses to be a, a theoretical belief. The God who wants to be center place, the guy who wants to change people and change history. He becomes a man. And as a man, he does some pretty incredible things. He walks around and he heals. He gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He gives speech to the mute. He cleanses the lepers. He raises the dead. He's casting out demons everywhere He goes. He's the, he's the Savior, the, 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 the God of light, and therefore He's always confronting the, the principalities of darkness, and He's delivering people from demons all of, all, wherever He goes. He's the God who does stuff. He's always in the re- face of the religious leaders who are so sure that they've got God in their nice little traditions in a nice little box, and Jesus is always nose-to-nose with them. He will not be put into a nice, convenient box that... Looks pretty on the rest of our life. So he befriends prostitutes, and he befriends lepers, and he befriends tax collectors, and he befriends uh, zealots just to shake up the establishment because this is a God who wants to make a difference. This is a God who's radical, a God who is revolutionary, a God who will not be defined by some little peripheral religious system that will be conveniently looked upon by some people when the season's right. He will not let it happen. He's God who is Emmanuel. He's God who's with us. And it doesn't just stop. It's not once upon a time when when, when Christ leaves us. He tells his disciples this. Listen to this. John chapter 14. He says, don't marvel at the miracles that I do. Don't marvel at the miracles I do, because greater deeds than these you shall do. John 14, 27. Greater deeds than these shall you do, because I am with you now, but I shall be in you. I'm going to be in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he says in Acts chapter 1, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And power they received. So Peter turns from a coward into a bold preacher, and on the day of Pentecost preaches to a whole city load of hostile witnesses, and he converts 3,000 on the birthday of the church. And Paul, who is the antagonist of Christianity, the opponent of Christianity, he gets converted ends up planting churches all throughout the Mediterranean area. And through Peter, and through Paul, and through Simon, and through Philip, and through John, and through all the disciples, God continues to do the work that Jesus Christ did. They continue to do miracles. They continue to do healings. They continue to preach the gospel. People continue to, continue, continue to get saved. And they continue to cast out demons. God is Emmanuel, a God who wants to make a difference, a God who's real. It's easy to believe in a God who's theoretical, a deist kind of a deity up there far away. But this God wants to be involved and visibly make a difference, and he has not changed. Amen? He has not changed. You know, he still is against demons. The God who's Emmanuel, when God shows up, one of the first things he wants to do is kick demons out. And the world is, 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 is demon-filled. I mean, the Bible tells us that. 1 John five nineteen. And he's still in that business. We just last week, Steve and uh, Steve Van Sickle and and several others from our church went to a lady's house. And she was being demonized in a real overt way. If it's true that God is still with us, it's also true that Satan is still with us. And if that sounds kind of weird to you, it's probably because there's been too much Nietzsche around. But the truth of the matter is, is that that's the reality. And what kingdom stuff is about is confronting demonic powers. And they did. They went there and God poured out His Spirit and God gave them a word of knowledge and discernment and other things that God promised that He would do. He, 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 he does immeasurably more than we'd ever ask or think. He shows up as God Emmanuel when people choose to believe Him and they did a the deliverance there. They did the same thing just several weeks ago at another person's house. God is still in the business of freeing people from demonic powers. And I believe that, 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 that the, more, the, the farther we go in, in spiritual warfare, the more of that we're going to see. And we just got to be okay with that because it's all throughout the Gospels. God is still Emmanuel. He's real. He wants to make a difference in people's lives. When I stop and, and look back at, at some of the history of Woodland Hills and just what God has been doing through the ministry here, and by the ministry here, I mean you. We're, we support the ministry. You are the ministers. Uh, and, and, and what God has been doing through the ministry here. We're in the process of compiling kind of a book about this because it's, it's really interesting. Uh, not an official book, but, it was, but sort of a record of things. Because it shows Emmanuel, God with us. The God who's worth bragging on because it's a God who's not a theoretical belief, but a God who's real and changes things. Just had, and we've said this before, but it's worth saying again, young man... A couple of weeks ago, about a year after the doctors gave him a year to live, had three tumors in his mind, go in his brain, he goes to the doctors, the tumors are gone. God is Emmanuel. God is there. God healed him. God healed another person of a, of a, a serious knee injury just days before they were supposed to go in and get, get knee surgery. God healed a person with a chronic, um, a chronic shoulder problem. That was healed. A person with a chronic heart problem. That was healed. A baby with a fat eye. That was healed. Uh, just, just about two weeks ago, there's a lady up here with a severe migraine headache. The Lord took it from her. God makes a difference in people's lives where there are people who will choose to believe on him. He's still Emmanuel, the God who makes a difference. Not a once upon a time nice story ornament that's in addition to everything else that's already there in our life. He's the God who wants to make a difference. And when I think about what God's done just in people's lives, even better than the healing stuff and even better than the deliverance stuff is just the way God has healed wounded people. I just get faces come to mind of a, of a person just seriously under bondage to sex from sex abuse, and God's in the process of healing her. A young man who just had his whole nervous system kind of severed, God's in the process of healing him. Do- dozens and dozens of people have come to know the Lord. That's the work of God. Just several weeks ago, a young man came to the Lord here that someone invited to church. Marriages is put back together, families restored. Emmanuel, God who is with us. This God taking a handful of people and in, in the process of two years, bringing about thirteen or 1,400 or however many people we've got coming here, God is the God who acts, the God who does, the God who is able, the God who is able. And it is the farthest thing in the world from just believing about something, from believing an abstract sort of theoretical philosophy, from believing... A nice story that's safe and innocuous and doesn't demand anything of our life and never intersects with our life, but is there when we are lonely and when we feel like we want to call upon him once a year or when it's nice and convenient to do so. Then we look to him. God is not like that. The true God is a real God, a tangible God, a visible God, the God who wants to be forefront in our life and do great things for his name's sake. That's Emmanuel. Now what has all that got to do with this? I don't know, but it seemed nice to say. (laughs) It's got this to do with it. And it answers the question, why is this verse here in this passage that Paul's talking about, why is this part of the ignition? And here's why. This whole passage, Paul's been talking about how to take our head stuff and make it hard stuff. How to find the key, the ignition to the Lamborghini. And and, uh, how to drive this thing. And as a part of that whole ignition, he puts this verse. Here's the force of that. And here's what I want us to get. We've got to get this. Everything hangs upon this. Paul's telling us that if you want to begin to see the reality of what you're believing, then yield to the Spirit. Verse 16. Walk in the Spirit. Let the Spirit strengthen you in the inner man. Develop a sensitivity to the Spirit. Then, verse 17, by faith. By faith. Let Christ dwell richly in your heart. Or let Christ be at home. Surrender to Christ. Yield to Christ. And when that happens, now comes this third point, And this is the big one. Now, God is able to do immeasurably more than we'd ever ask or imagine. But what I want us to see is that verse 20. It's like everything else in this passage. Verse 20 comes, and verse 21 comes as a result of people following verses 16 and 17 and 18. The whole thing hangs together. It doesn't happen by accident, folks. Many people in our culture, many Christians in our culture, maybe most Christians in our culture, Wait around for God to do something. And then they wonder why they don't see the goods of the Christian life. They, they wait. They, they, they're just waiting for the supernatural to occur and hoping that someday, way, it's just going to pop, it's going to be there, if they even really believe in that. And many times they're just comfortable to go along with a little philosophy, you know, the, the cute little story, and never see any of the reality of it. But there is, we've been seeing the last four weeks, A spiritual law of cause and effect. A spiritual law of cause and effect. You're saved by grace. God does it to you. But what you do with that salvation determines how effective of a conduit you are going to be for the power of God. Are you following me on this? The degree to which you yield, the degree to which you surrender, the degree to which you exercise faith, the extent to which you let Christ be the owner of your heart. The extent to which you take the crown off your own head and lay it at the, uh, on the head of the baby Jesus. The degree to which you walk in the Spirit and respond to the Spirit obediently. Those kind of things determine the extent to which Christ is at home in your life, the extent to which the inner man gets strengthened, and therefore the extent to which the power of God, which the verse says is working in us, can now flow through us. Are you following me on this? Faith is not a passive thing. Faith is not a passive thing. Faith is an active thing. It's a choice we make. It's a decision we make. And if you want to see God begin to make a difference in your life and a difference in the lives of other people through you, you've got to be willing to have your faith make a difference in your life. Let the Lord begin to stretch your faith. Faith is an active thing. Consider this, okay? Just think about this. I See, this is why I think everything hangs upon it. This is why I feel a real kind of intensity about me this morning. I don't know if you noticed that or not. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would right now really anoint the next thing I'm going to say, God. God, challenge me with what I'm going to say. There's a man, a blind man, who was sitting by the roadside. A blind man was sitting by the roadside, and he was crying out. Jesus was coming by, and he was saying, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And the crowd said, shut up. Don't bother him. He's got other things to do. He's got important people to be around. They really stifled the guy, but he wouldn't quit. He kept on pressing on. That is faith. The Bible says because of that, he was healed. Now, there was a lot of blind men in those days, and a lot of them were not healed. But he was. Why? Because he had faith. He had a faith that he exercised. He made a decision to press on. And the result of that is he got to see something about the glory of God that other blind men in that time could not see. Excuse the pun. Uh... because he pressed on. The lady, the Syrophoenician woman who came up from, from Greece because she had a daughter who was sick, a daughter who was dying, heard the story about Jesus, heard that he could do something. She had faith. She acted on the faith. She went about 200 miles to talk to Jesus. There's a lot of other daughters who were sick in that land, but hers was healed. Why? Because she had faith. She stepped out on faith. In faith, she stormed heaven. And the Bible says she would not be denied, even though Jesus almost tried to push her away when you read the story. The friends of the, the crippled man who uh, they came to the house where Jesus was teaching, they couldn't get in. You know the story? They climbed up on the housetop. They tore the guy's roof apart so they could lower him through. That is faith. Faith isn't a passive thing. Faith doesn't say, well, if it's God's will, maybe he'll show up here. You know, I just, you know, seek not, forbid not. Whatever happens, kind of happens. I, you know... No, faith says, I believe that God is able. I believe he's able to even do more than I'd ask. I believe that God is able to do more than I'd ever think. And therefore, I'm going to pray. I'm going to exercise that faith. I choose to believe it's a decision we make. And so it is for the lepers who sought Jesus out. A lot of lepers in the land didn't get healed, but this leper did because he sought Jesus out. He persisted. Against the obstacles, he sought Jesus out. Ugh. It doesn't happen by accident, folks. It doesn't happen by accident. What's been going on here hasn't been happening by accident. It happens because there are people who understand that the spiritual world operates by laws the same way that the physical world operates. If you want to see God move, then you just have to take seriously the things that He says need to happen for God to move. If it wasn't for, if it wasn't for, hundreds of people praying for chris morgan i don't have any reason to think that that he'd be healed there's a lot of people who who don't get healed of that but he believed as and and marcy believed and they had hundreds of people praying for him now maybe he would have got healed anyways we don't know these kind of things but i do know that they were responding to a fundamental law of scripture that says that when you pray god answers harry in the middle of a board meeting this isn't quite standard board meeting stuff. says, i got a bad knee problem. I'm going to be getting surgery. Can we pray for that knee? The knee gets healed as he's driving home. I think that if he would have not have obeyed the Spirit in that, in that particular instance, I don't have any reason to think he would have got healed. He would have went through surgery like everybody else does. Or the lady who, who responded to the Spirit and came forward with a migraine headache. Or the lady who came forward and had a kidney stone and she gets prayed for. And so on and so on. People who respond to the Spirit. People who respond to the promptings of the Spirit, people who make a decision to believe what our culture says we should not believe—that's what begins to kick in. This reservoir of power that we already have within us. God shows up when we allow, when we let Him out of the box of our limited faith, and it's anything but a once upon a time nice ornament is an acute kind of a story. God is God, Emmanuel. If that story is true, then that's got to impact our life in the most incredible way. I want to challenge you. I, I don't know about you, but I really want to see Emmanuel on an ongoing basis. I want this verse. See, this verse, I want to be true. Is God able? Do we really believe that? Or is Nietzsche right? That's the question. Is Nietzsche right? God is able... To do immeasurably more than we'd ever ask or, or think? Do we believe that? That's the thing. If you want to see it happen, I challenge me, I challenge us with this. Surrender like you've never surrendered before. Sell out. Do verse 17. Let Christ be at home. Let Christ into every nook and cranny of your life. If there's things there that the Lord says shouldn't be there, get them out of there, huh? <laughs> If the Lord moves on you to pray for somebody, pray for somebody. If the Lord puts it on your heart to write somebody, write somebody. Develop an awareness of the Lord, communing with your inner spirit as you go about your everyday life. I challenge you to abandon ship, sell out, make Christ the center of your life, the passion of your life, the reason for your living. Christ is life, Paul says. To die is gain. To live is Christ. There is no other life but Christ. I challenge you and I challenge me to make that a reality instead of a theoretical belief because the, the scripture says that when that happens, the car starts to run, the engine begins to ru- rev up, and the Ferrari is going to go faster than you could think or I could think. Can, I, can you picture God? What can you imagine God doing? Because he can do more than you can imagine, but what can you imagine God doing? Can you picture God revamping your, your, your personality where it needs to be revamped? Can you picture God? Is it possible? Can you see this happening? Can you choose to believe this? Can you yield to this? God taking fear out of your life, that fear that's bothered you for so long. God taking that worry out of your life, that worry that's bothered you so long. God taking the bitterness out of your life, that bitterness that's been bothering you so long. God taking the unforgiveness out of your life, the unforgiveness that's been there for so long. God taking the selfishness out of your life, that selfishness that has been there for so long. Can can you picture God freeing you from that? Can you picture God healing you from the wounds that are there? Can you picture God? Can you ask God for this? Healing your marriage, reuniting you, bringing back your kids, whatever it is. Can you picture God using you as a display of supernatural love at your workplace and in your family and everything else around you? Can you imagine it? And can you begin to storm heaven like the Syrophoenician woman, like the leper, like the blind man, begin to bombard heaven for that faith, believing that God is able not only to do that, but to do immeasurably more than that? And can we hear hear in the church, as a church, for this community of people that God has been building, can we believe God to do what we ask? Nay. What we think? Nay. Immeasurably more than we'd ever ask or think? What would that look like? I guess I'm feeling this because you know we're coming up to a new year and we're going to be moving into a new building, and maybe it's time to do a new to find a new gear. Maybe that's what the Lord's doing for us. Let's find a new gear. Can we believe God to do what, what we could never do on our own, Queen? Believe God, ah, just to reach out to that east side there and and to, to bring in people, to bring in people like an incredible magnet that cannot be resisted, to bring in people. And great, praise God that we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of people accept the Lord as Savior. Hundreds, why not hundreds and hundreds? And No, wait, I can still think about that. I can still see that. What I really can't see is thousands and thousands. So I'm going to believe God for that. Can we believe God for that much? Can we believe God to bring into our midst build a kind of a demonstrable kingdom of God here where we'd have people from the most incredible kind of backgrounds united together here, from different races united here, from different economic strata united here. Can we see a ministry reaching out to people who are gay and people who are drug addicts and people who are violent and people who have just been through the ringer ten times and then some? And bring, amen, bringing in here the kingdom of God, that kind of stuff. The only thing, the only thing that stands between us and an incredible display of God's omnipotence, because God wants to do that. God wants to do that. The only thing that stands between us and a display of that is our will. Will we believe? Or will it, or will, will it be a Nietzsche kind of thing? Where yeah, we're just sort of... We believe it theoretically, of course. It's a nice story. Once upon a time, go to church. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and that's it. We're going to rev up the engine or we're going to sit in this Ferrari till the kingdom comes and just kind of admire the shine. (sighs) The final thing is this. If this If we take this passage as it is, this is a radical God. He's always been a radical God. It shouldn't surprise us. The only reason we don't see a radical God is because often we don't have radical people who let the radical God be the radical God. We try to normalize God. We want to make it normal. Status quo, religion, makes good citizens. We want to normalize God, sedate God. I guess that's what bugs me about so much of Christmas as we celebrate it here. It's a tame God. And friends, the tame God is not the true God, the true God is unleashed. <laughs> Amen. He's a lion, he's big. Lion of Judah. Lion of Judah. normality is way overrated. Praise God. <laughs> I challenge you to be radical, to have a radical faith, to believe against all obstacles, to take God at his word, to unleash God out of the closet, to let him every, into every nook and cranny of your heart, to give him the throne, to sell out, to abandon ship, to just give all, and then let's watch God do the Christmas story in our midst. Emmanuel, God with us, the God who makes a concrete difference. Father, make it real. Words can't make it real. Effort can't make it real. You've got to make it real, Lord. I pray that you would become so real to us. Bulldoze over us, Lord. Free us, Lord, from the spirit of Nietzsche, the spirit of Antichrist, that wants you to be a safe deity in a story long long ago and far away, Lord. Help us to make it a reality now.